You're listening to Truth Jihad Radio on the internet airwaves since 2006 and crowdfunded since around 2010. By crowdfunding this show, you are saving me from having to rely on funding from the governments, the corporations, and the usual suspects, uh, including the mainstream media, so I can call it exactly the way I see it. Please do subscribe. You can go to truthjihad.com. And you'll land on a page where you will see subscribe at Substack. You could click there or you could just go to kevinbarrett.substack.com. The key thing is don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment. Well, I think that the most important, the most compelling was, uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to the special live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, doing this live show every Friday evening out of an undisclosed location deep in the Wisconsin woods from an old ice cream trailer, in fact, that's been reconverted into a studio, or such as it is, anyway. Anyway, tonight we have a really wild and crazy show, everything from the incredibly well-researched and profound to the wild and crazy esoteric by way of the ultra-controversial. The esoteric stuff happens in the final half hour of this two-hour show when Art Olivier, the former mayor of Bellflower, California, as well as the former uh, Libertarian Party vice presidential candidate, who unfortunately lost to Dick Cheney and the rest was history, he comes on to discuss various symbolic, Freemasonic, esoteric ramifications of the destruction of the Georgia Guidestones. So that's the uh, wildest and craziest topic. The most controversial, touchy topic, the kind that'll get people dissing you, deplatforming you, and sending Antifa after you, will come in the first half hour of the second hour, when Peter Myers joins us to discuss his latest newsletter, which includes all sorts of interesting stories about uh, Russia, mocks, U.S. embrace of trans, and similar culture wars-related topics. Now, in the first hour, we're getting into the uh, profound and equally controversial, uh, but really it shouldn't be, work of Richard Cook. Richard Cook is a retired U.S. government analyst. He is the well-known challenger disaster whistleblower. He had more than his 15 minutes of fame when he showed that it was the O-rings that brought down the challenger. And he's been doing analysis for the U.S. government for quite a long time. And boy, did he just put out an interesting analysis. Uh, It's a backgrounder on the Ukraine war, and it gets into the deep background, the long background. The article is the U.S., the Ukraine disaster, and the future, the long view. And it's racking up a lot of reads at Veterans Today. It's 46,000 words. That is the length of a, a relatively short book. Uh, And it's really highly recommended. So let's get into talking about it now. Hey, welcome, Richard Cook. Congratulations on that incredible article. Thank you, Kevin. Good evening. Good evening. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Thank you. Yeah, you know, I thought your your article is is brilliant. I mean, in terms of quality and length, 
it's uh, you know, really a standout, even in this Internet era of vast amounts of information wanting to be free. Um, right. So I don't know I'm sure where, where to start talking about it, because, you you know, the, the mainstream media leaves out the background to the Ukraine war. And you've just supplied, right. I mean, mega background, basically a right. revisionist view of American history and everything yeah. somebody would need to understand your take on this subject, but really well put together. So uh, I'm not even sure how to ask you to start to summarize it. Well, I sat down about a month ago uh, to try to write out a complete account of where I thought we were and how we got there on the Ukraine war. And I realized uh, I really had to go back early into American history. And I actually taught American history at one time, a long time ago, uh, during a hiatus from working for the government. But I also spent a good bit of time uh, when I was working with the U.S. Treasury Department studying U.S. monetary history. Uh, And I felt that uh, so much of how we got to where we are today cannot be understood without understanding the monetary system, uh, the banking industry, uh, how banking took over the country essentially uh, through uh, the Reagan revolution back in the 1980s. And I was actually working in the Jimmy Carter White House when we saw that freight train coming down the road, and nothing has really been the same since then. Uh, It was with the banking takeover of the U.S. economy and then by extension the attempt by the banking empire to take over the global economy that required this uh, philosophy of military conquest to uh, kind of take the lead in dominating uh, foreign nations to make them susceptible to the U.S. financial takeover. And I think that's exactly what we've been seeing uh, with the uh, uh, first uh, Iraq war by Bush, uh, during the Clinton attack on Yugoslavia, during the Bush-Cheney war on terror. And something that is not really emphasized very much is how much Obama continued that uh, kind of a lower-key attempt to dominate uh, the world. Uh, by American military might, but nevertheless, just as real. And it was actually the Obama administration, with uh, Biden being the point man, uh, with uh, Victoria Nuland being the uh, representative on the scene of the State Department, and Hillary Clinton kind of hovering in the background. And of course, by then, John Kerry was actually the Secretary of State. They mounted the Maidan coup in 2014 that uh, threw over the uh, democratically elected government of Ukraine, uh, started the war in Donbass, and became such a threat to Russia that Russia finally felt that it had to intervene militarily. But it was the United States that started this war. And I spell that out in great detail in the article, going through step by step, including up to the very last minute. Uh, where on February 16th uh, uh, of this year, uh, with the Americans uh, kind of behind it, uh, Ukraine began a heavy bombardment of the Donbass in eastern Ukraine, preparatory to a massive invasion. Uh, Russia had stationed its own army on the borders of Ukraine, 
but they let this uh, bombardment go on for about eight days before they crossed the border. Uh, so this is the substance of Russia's unprovoked aggression against Ukraine. It was uh, uh, responding to a war that the United States deep state, the CIA, the State Department, uh, the National Endowment for Democracy started uh, going back eight years previously. So uh, when you look at the background of that, you need to bring an awful lot of information and knowledge. And that's what I tried to provide in this article. I think you did a very good job. And I think your emphasis on the banking uh, history and the way that this is really a war to make the world safe for the call them the U.S. based international bankers, although I don't know, if, I don't think they're very American, but they certainly use the American military as their prime enforcement arm, along with the American CIA. And that leads me to ask whether your analysis is congruent with that of Michael Hudson, who has also done some long view pieces in his case, going back to the days of Nebuchadnezzar and, and even beyond that. So he he took an even longer view in some ways than you did. And I guess, you know, he, he argues that right now uh, we're, we're seeing a U.S. war not just against Russia, but also against Europe, and that the fact that the euro has been driven down to parity with the dollar and the European economy has been crippled all represents a victory over Europe by the U.S. bankers, which is kind of similar to the U.S. victory over Britain in World War II when we absconded with Britain's gold reserves. Do you, so do you agree with Hudson's analysis, and do you see the U.S. at war, uh, covert war with Europe? Uh, Michael Hudson is one of my mentors. Uh, I, I used to uh, see Michael uh, some years ago when we would both attend the uh, conferences that were being held uh, in New York on uh, guaranteed basic income. And, uh, yeah, Michael's uh, research and writing has had a big influence on me. Uh, I'll give you a, a, a good example. Uh, he goes back into ancient Middle Eastern history, a, as you know, and talks about how this uh, financial system based on usury uh, came out of the uh, ancient Middle East. And there's a story he tells about how the devil was trying to figure out the best way to enslave humanity. And he was having a real hard time doing this because he couldn't really think up a, a foolproof method. So he sent out to all the little devils to come and help him with this. So uh, one little devil came up to him and said, look, I know exactly what you do. You charge compound interest for lending of money. And the devil said, yeah, that's a great idea. I'm going to do that. And ever since, we've had banking charging compound interest. And as you know, if you compound interest uh, over uh, uh, an extended period of time, maybe a century or two, the cost of that is going to be greater than all of the gold and money in existence. So it's an absolute disaster. But that's what the banking system put into place starting in the Renaissance period. Gradually, they extended their hold over Europe. Uh, the Bank of England was based upon usury. And, of course, it was all against uh, the prescriptions of the Catholic Church, which had outlawed usury. But usury became the, the standard method of banking in the Western world. 
And the uh, Americans really didn't pick it up until after the American Revolution. Uh, until the uh, Revolutionary War, we did not have uh, commercial banks. But we got into that business very, very fast. Uh, and, uh, of course, Michael now uh, explains how the rentier economy, where people who own money and lend it out and uh, uh, essentially charge rent to everybody else for the use of the resources of the world, the productive resources, and it gradually enslaves everyone to that system. And that's the system that he's talking about. And yes, uh, he says that the real enemy in this of the United States is not Russia, it's Europe. Uh, and you can see how this is happening with Europe going into a, a deepening uh, uh, depression over fuel prices. Uh, there's a threat now of the deindustrialization of Europe. And, uh, you know, there's this saying, uh, it was developed by some British guy, uh, the purpose of NATO is to keep the U.S. in, Russia out, and Europe and Germany down. And if you look at what's happening in Europe, that's exactly what's going on. Uh, the U.S. is getting ever deeper involved in, in Europe. We're now talking about uh, a major uh, headquarters base in Poland. Uh, stationing U.S. troops in the Baltic provinces, in Romania, uh, Russia being forced out with all of these sanctions, and Germany on the brink of economic collapse. So, yeah, Michael and I are totally in sync on this. And the question, or what, one of the many questions that your article and, and Michael Hudson's work raises is, how is this working out for the people who orchestrated this war? If you read mainstream media, we keep hearing Putin is losing and he's got cancer. You know, the uh, you, right. Ukrainians are advancing. Their counteroffensive is beginning. They took out a Russian this and they took out a Russian that. A bunch of old Ukrainian ladies, uh, grandmas with knitting needles, killed uh, 12 Ukrainian tanks with their knitting needles. And, and the, uh, you know, the, the, the ace of, of Kiev or whatever, the ghost of Kiev is shot down Russia. Ghost of Kiev, know, right. All of this nonsense. Right. right. But, but, but then. Uh, you look at the facts on the ground and Russia just keeps taking more and more territory. Uh, and you kind of have to wonder how the neocons who orchestrated this on behalf of their bankster masters think they're going to win when Russia seems to have, um, if not escalation dominance, at least escalation parity and strategic nuclear parity. Um, I was speaking with Gordon Duff the other day, and I hope this isn't a national security secret and not going to have to kill me for saying this on the air. But uh, Gordon said that, and I couldn't find this anywhere else, that the uh, Russians have actually deployed their submarines with the Poseidon nuclear radioactive tsunami device on board, which is capable of generating 500 plus foot tall tidal waves higher than the highest land in the British Isles. So, and they're in this this one uh, apparently, according to Gordon anyway, and I've seen other material on this, one such torpedo could essentially kill everyone in the entire British Isles and leave them radioactive and uninhabitable for a very, very long time. And likewise, you could do the same thing to the uh, eastern or western parts of the United States where almost all of the population is. Um, so that sounds like strategic nuclear parity, if not dominance to me. 
when only one torpedo needs to get through without those kinds of consequences. You know, the U.S. has nuclear strategists have been planning a first strike and they keep trying to get more and more accurate missiles so they can fire first, knock out most of the Russian missiles and then shoot down what little is left as it comes after us. Looks like that's not going to work. So what are your thoughts about these uh, neocon strategists and how they think they're going to win this war? Well, you don't have to worry because what you got from Gordon uh, is available in open sources. Uh, in fact, uh, when Liz Truss, you know, she's the uh, foreign secretary. Oh, now, I'm sorry, I'm sorry Richard. Say, it, it, it wasn't the description of this weapon, but it was the fact that the Russians have actually already deployed it. Uh, it was last week that they sent out the first submarine yeah. uh, with such a weapon. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Uh, when Liz Truss started talking in a very belligerent way early in the conflict, uh, a uh, Russian TV station actually ran a video of uh, this tidal wave engulfing uh, Britain. And, of course, there was a big panic about that in Britain, uh, about uh, how the Russians were really uh, going way off the deep end and escalating the conflict, but uh, yeah, yeah, that that's out there. Uh, to, to try to answer your question, first of all, uh, the neocons are kind of a strange breed, aren't they? Uh, one of the things that's said about them when you see the, the commentaries, uh, and I watch a lot of commentaries that come out of Europe on this, they do not have a reverse gear. Uh, they try something, it fails. Uh, instead of backing down, rethinking it, they double down and try something else. And the whole war on terror that the neocons started uh, after 9-11 has been essentially one fiasco, one failure after another. Uh, the latest being, we'll get back to Ukraine, but the latest being Syria. Now the U, uh, the neocon plot to take down Syria, which really was amplified by Obama in his Arab Spring, uh, has run into a wall, uh, and that wall has three uh, uh, parts to it, Turkey, Russia, and Iran. Uh, and Erdogan uh, of Turkey, who's a member of NATO, said something very remarkable uh, yesterday. He said the U.S. needs to get out of Syria. So the the neocon project is failing on every front. Now with Ukraine, they planned this thing. They've been planning to get Ukraine going back into the Clinton administration because the big mentor at that time was Brzezinski, you know, with his global chessboard that made Ukraine the centerpiece of control practically of the entire world. Uh, The world island and the center of the world island was Eastern Europe and the center of Eastern Europe was Ukraine. And he said that the whole future of Russia depended on whether it controlled Ukraine. So Ukraine has been in the crosshairs for 30 years. Uh, and uh, uh, after uh, the Maidan coup in, in 2014, the plan at that time seemed to be, and again, this is a plan that Biden was very intimately involved with, and his, his neocon crowd, you know, the Blinkens and, and the Sullivans and the Newlands and all them. The plan was to goad Russia into an attack so they could paint Russia as the bad guy. 
they would arm Ukraine to the teeth with uh, uh, NATO uh, certified uh, weapons, NATO certified tactics, uh, intelligence uh, assistance from the U.S. Uh, and and uh, NATO. And when Russia attacked, uh, they would run into so much uh, uh, opposition. Uh, the implementation of these economic sanctions, which were all prepared in advance by meetings in advance with Germany, with France, with the EU, that would cause a revolution in Russia to overthrow Putin. And then essentially they could do the same thing they did in the 1990s when they sent in all of their economic hitmen uh, into Russia to take over uh, the country and we would have then a Russia under our control. That was the plan. It didn't work. Uh, Putin uh, was prepared. Uh, Russia had its army ready. It had these weapon systems they've been developing for years, uh, these hypersonic missiles ready, in production, in stockpile. And uh, if you read, you know, anybody can go on the internet and find sources that will tell you exactly what's happening in Ukraine day by day. And there were reports coming out today that uh, Defense Minister Shoigu has actually been in the Donbass preparing for a major assault that may take them all the way to the Dnieper River and maybe even beyond. So Russia is ready to uh, turn the tide. Uh, they've already gained control over most of the uh, Donbass region, and now they're ready to go all the way and take over the whole of the country. And uh, uh, that's what the uh, New York Times and the Washington Post and everybody else uh, doesn't want to face up to. But American intelligence knows it. And there are some pretty strong indications that the U.S. is backing off its weapons deliveries uh, and, and drawing a line to where beyond which they will not go because they know if they provoke Russia too, too far, Russia will attack uh, with even greater force. So that's that's kind of how I see it. In a sense, though, that that doesn't really answer my question or really clarify the point that you raised when you said that the neocons just keep doubling down. And my analysis of this whole thing from the very beginning, and I saw that Russia basically won the war in the first day or so as it, it took out Ukraine's military communications and its air force that pretty much sealed the deal. And. So at that point, obviously, the Ukrainian side should have tried to settle and sue for peace and they could have got better terms. But every day that they've waited since then, they're going to get worse terms because the Russians have spent blood and treasure and a lot of blood uh, to take more and more and more land. And as you say, now they're poised to take a whole lot more land and everything they take is what they're mostly not going to give up. So. This is going to shape up as a huge defeat, not just for Ukraine, which will essentially be virtually ended as a state, uh, but also for the United States, which, as you say, started this war, orchestrated this war. The neocons don't usually accept defeat. They keep doubling down. Will they have to accept defeat? And if not, what are they going to do, given that, as, as I put it in my Crescent article last month, their uh, attempts to keep... Uh, kind of you know, raising the stakes uh, will eventually run into a nuclear glass ceiling. They are losing in Ukraine. 
they are losing in Syria. It appears that uh, if they try to attack Iran, uh, that may develop into another debacle for the West, uh, in, including this time Israel, uh, that they're not going to be able to uh, overcome. They're pushing into China, uh, trying to provoke China to uh, uh, some kind of military action uh, over the one China policy with Taiwan. Uh, so they're pushing and pushing and pushing. Uh, and they're failing and failing and failing. Now, what happens when uh, that, that kind of pressure builds up? Uh, you're right. The, uh, the U.S. is facing a, a, a probably the worst strategic defeat in history, uh, greater than Vietnam. Uh, now, the neocons have been gradually uh, accruing power uh, as we know, for decades, uh, going back to the days of Scoop Jackson in, in the uh, uh, the 1970s, and then worming their way into the Reagan administration, uh, putting on Iran-Contra, uh, building up to uh, the attacks on Iran in 9-11, and all of the wars that have come out since then. So when they hit the wall, as they are going to do, uh, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Uh, will the uh, Democrats uh, get voted uh, out of office with the midterm elections? Uh, will, if, if, if that happens, will the Republicans launch an impeachment against Biden, who's up to his eyeballs in corruption and, uh, and neocon intrigues? Uh, I don't think anybody has the answer to that. I, I certainly don't. I think we're heading for a crisis. They're trying everything they can do to uh, to to get uh, the voters to uh, not throw them out of office. Uh, if it continues with the Republicans, uh, with the, with the Democrats after the midterm elections and Biden is still in power, uh, then they've got the 2024 election. But if 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 what you're getting at is, do I think there will be a nuclear war against Russia? Honestly, I don't. I don't think the neocons, when it comes right down to it, have the power to get the president to push that final button. I really don't think so. But I may be wrong. How about a big false flag that brings the U.S. into Ukraine in a bigger way, risking nuclear war, but not just pushing the button. Well, the thing about that, uh, you know, they've tried false flags. They tried that massacre with that village outside Kiev. That has been totally discredited uh, in the international media. Uh, they've tried false flags uh, at Mariupol when they claimed that the uh, Russians had bombed that hospital, and that was disproven in the media. Uh, the Russian Ministry of Defense has been warning over and over again to look out for false flags at Chernobyl, uh, at the, I don't know the name of it, but the big reactor in central Ukraine. Uh, yeah, uh, that possibility of false flags has been out there the whole time. Uh, now, whether the United States could succeed in detonating a nuke in Iran 
and being able to pin that on the Russians, uh, I hope not. I, I doubt that they could get away with it. I think I'm sorry, you said a, their detonating game. a nuke in Iran and blaming the Russians? Uh, I, I'm sorry, in, in, in Ukraine. Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. I, I think people are wise to this game now. One reason is so many people like you have been sounding the, the uh, false flag alarm so convincingly. I don't know if they've got any of that left in their arsenal, honestly. I hope they don't. And, and you know, I think one aspect of the way they've been playing the political game might be bouncing back against them, uh, which is the way that they have turned the Democrats and liberals into the hawks. And yeah. the Republican flag-waving patriots, who are usually the hawks, actually are about split 50-50 right now and aren't feeling very much like marching behind Biden uh, into Russia and Ukraine to make the world safe for LGBTQ, right? So we've got right. this weird yeah. political flip. <laughs> and false flags are kind of punches to the gut that appeal yeah. to the people who think with their guts, which are mostly the conservative types, the people who waved the flags right. after 9-11. And now those people are really the last ones who are going to be susceptible to a false flag. And the Democrats, for all of their bellicose tweets and, you know, hating on Putin and, uh, from the safety of their Twitter feed, I don't think they're really excited about marching off to die in Ukraine. So, yeah, I, I think uh, it, I don't see how a false flag would work, frankly. But, you know, that maybe they maybe they're thinking further ahead than I am. No, I agree with you. I, I think they've met their match. I think they're hitting the wall. And uh, it's the, the neocons who have been driving this train for so long. Uh, again, they have no reverse gear. Uh, their plan A was to uh, get regime change in Russia. It didn't work. There is no plan B. Uh, so... And you're right. The whole thing, uh, the political uh, world has reversed. Uh, Ron Paul is calling out Biden on the uh, Ukraine war. In fact, on, on his show today, they, uh, they highlighted a CNN poll that actually had a majority of uh, people polled against Biden's uh, policy and execution of the war in Ukraine. This is unprecedented. Uh, and, of course, we can always refer to our good friend Tucker Carlson, who's been uh, leading the Republican charge against Biden uh, for supporting Zelensky, for sending millions, and he's authorized another 17 million today in weapons to Ukraine. He just won't stop. Uh, with gas prices up, uh, with employment going up, unemployment going up, uh, Biden continuing to send millions and billions to Ukraine. People are sick of it. And you're right. The Republicans are the ones who are calling him on it right now. Now, I, and ironically, you know, Trump is trying to get poised for a comeback as the Democrats try to drive a stake through his heart with the January 6th committee hearings with what right. appears to be very mixed success. It makes you wonder whether Trump or somebody like him, a sort of a you know America First type or a MAGA type, might actually be what we would need, if not what we would need, at least uh, someone who could conceivably turn the ship of state uh, in the way that it, it needs, to, you know, just desperately needs to be turned at least somewhat to avoid hitting that that nuclear iceberg. 
you know, because it seems that the, the Democrats and that establishment are so wed to their uh, post-World War II hegemonic project with all of its alliances and such that they can't really think outside the box and recognize that maybe the time has come for the U.S. to stop trying to dominate the world that way and instead be a normal nation pursuing its own interests. And in a way, that was sort of the message of Trump. I mean, Trump isn't exactly uh, you know, a, a very sane genius or whatever he said he was. He's obviously not a genius, but he may have enough common sense to notice that it's time for the U.S. to be much more modest and to start just sort of pursuing its own interests with with enlightened self-interest sometimes, but to stop, it's time to stop trying to rule the world, stop trying to destroy Russia, overthrow Putin, uh, overthrow the CCP, take over the whole world for the banksters. That's just probably not going to happen. So do you think you think Trump or somebody like him actually could be a positive thing down the line? Well, that's what I tried to uh, look at in my uh, article. Uh, I traced back this idea that the U.S. had to uh, exercise military domination over the entire world to some very specific steps that were taken just prior to World War II. And uh, the active party in that was the Council on Foreign Relations. And of course, we all know that's a Rockefeller uh, outfit. Uh, and if you trace uh, where that went uh, through World War II, through the Truman administration, through the creation of the CIA and the NSA, uh, and on, then on into the ongoing attempts by the CIA and then the U.S. military much more actively to overthrow any government that stood in the way of uh, total uh, U.S. domination. You take it through the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which spelled that out. You take it through the Pentagon declarations on full-spectrum dominance, and yeah, you've got a military takeover of the entire world. I think Trump did try to take a step or two back from that. Uh, did he understand what he was doing or the implications of it? No, probably not. And that's why he was such an easy target uh, for Hillary Clinton, who then was the flag carrier for the neocons and for the world domination uh, uh, agenda. Uh, is there anybody in the Republican Party who can uh, lead uh, the U.S. in a different direction. I don't know. And, and that's why I tried to spell out what I would consider to be a real revolutionary change in the U.S. And there really were only have only been two other significant figures who've used that term. One is Ron Paul. And Ron Paul is still very active. And he focuses a lot of his uh, arguments on the monetary system, on the power of the big banks, on the power of the Federal Reserve. Uh, the other, on the other end of the spectrum, is Barry, uh, Barry Sanders. And uh, Bernie Barry Sanders. Sanders. Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Sanders. Yeah, yeah, Barry Sanders so, was a pretty good halfback, but I don't, I don't think he's. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> he's Bernie's so, that's, that's what I was thinking of. Why did he retire? But anyway. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Bernie Sanders spoke of a revolution, and still is, I guess, but mainly that's just taxing the rich and giving more benefits to everybody else, which is not a bad idea, but he's never said one word to challenge the monetary system. And frankly, he hasn't said much to challenge the military system. And he's been very gung-ho about the U.S. war uh, 
you know, in, in favor of, uh, of Ukraine. So neither of those two guys have had the comprehensive view that I think we need to have to really change direction in a very profound way. So who's in line with the, uh, with the Republicans? Uh, Pence isn't going to do it. Uh, I don't think Pence has an original idea in his head. Uh, the only other person that the Republicans have who is anywhere near the head of the pack uh, in a 2024 election is DeSantis from Florida. Uh, he is a military man by his training and his background. I honestly don't know what he said about the war in Ukraine. Uh, but somebody would have to make a pretty significant departure from the side of the Republicans who are cheerleading the war uh, to get even to where Trump was. And I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, I certainly don't either. Well, here, here's a cool underdog scenario for you. I, I, I recently uh, saw Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin speaking at a picnic. Uh, this was last Saturday. Picnic was organized by my friend and former campaign manager, Rolf Lindgren. And Ron Johnson impressed me quite a lot. And he has been way out in front of all the other national level politicians in terms of calling out the problems with the response to COVID. And in particular, the problems with vaccines, which are a, a sacred cow that nobody has been allowed to criticize. And if the problems with the vaccines become so extreme and undeniable that the establishment has to pretty radically uh, admit that something went really, really wrong, people like Ron Johnson, in fact, Ron Johnson, above all other politicians, is going to look really good. So conceivably, right. a, uh, a kind of a, a massive change in the, the COVID uh, mainstream media coverage based on the admission that these vaccines have actually turned out to be total failures, which it looks like they have, could propel Ron Johnson to a, a pretty good place in terms of challenging DeSantis. And my sense of Johnson, I got a chance to go one-on-one -on -one with him for a couple of minutes. I think he's a sincere guy. He reminds me of my parents' friends. You know, when I was a kid, my dad was a, a businessman, and, and you know, we got to meet a bunch of other Republican businessmen from Wisconsin, and up to and including right. the richest one of all, uh, Terry Kohler, who came over to our house for dinner one night. Uh, when he was buying the company that my dad built up, North Sales. And so I, I met all these Republican businessmen when I was a kid. And they're basically decent people, um, not the most visionary types in terms of aesthetics and philosophy and, and political thinking, but basically decent people with OK values. And I got, I got the sense that that's Ron Johnson. He's, he's not a corrupt right. you know, swamp creature. So if he had good advisors and he got propelled into a high place in the race, thanks to a kind of, you know, COVID policy vaccine implosion, that would be pretty cool. You know, I could see uh, him doing good things. So he has the right instincts and he's, he's probably a bit more competent than Trump in certain key respects. So that would be, you know, my kind of best case scenario for a Republican. Um, I don't know what the odds are of that, though. Well, the Republicans are very deeply rooted uh, in the producing economy. And it seems to me that the rebuilding of the producing economy uh, has got to be a priority for somebody. Uh, our economy, as dependent as it is on making and selling weapons of war, uh, has just become such a perversion 
of uh, of the traditional American ingenuity and know-how that somebody has to attack that as well. Uh, and to see Biden uh, embarking on this Middle Eastern trip where uh, he's given billions to Saudi Arabia for their weapons, where he's given billions to uh, Israel for their weapons, where all he is is a salesman overseas for American uh, weapons of war, I think that's another thing that shows how degraded uh, the Democratic Party has become, not even to mention uh, Hunter Biden's investments in Pentagon biolabs in Ukraine. Uh, you know, uh, uh, that's just another I- indicator of the depravity of the Democratic Party at this time. Or, or Nancy Pelosi's uh, family getting uh, rich off of, uh, off of hedge funds. That's that's gambling with billions of dollars of people's money uh, that that uh, that that she has uh, enriched herself with, uh, or the Clintons uh, uh, and and their empire. It just goes on and on and on. So yeah, maybe if the Republicans actually could do what Trump claimed he wanted to do, and that is make America great again by going back to our roots in the producing economy and the people he talked to were people who had done real work, you know, real jobs, uh, factory jobs or small businesses or, uh, you know, that middle America type jobs who have been hammered so badly by what the global uh, economy has done and the big banks have done. I mean, look at what the banks did when, when in, in uh, Clinton, Clinton years, when they began to, engage in these leveraged buyouts where they would buy a business, fire everybody, sell the assets and pocket the change. Uh, Meanwhile, uh, uh, that productive capacity would move over to China or, or even Bangladesh for goodness sake. Uh, That's what the globalists and, and the Clintonites and the Obamaites and the Bidenites have done to us. So yeah, if the Republicans could come back, uh, along those lines, I, you know, Trump may have shown him the way. And it would be interesting if, if it plays out that way, because you know, Trump's America First mega agenda, you know, sounded great. And if I, I look at your policy proposals, which I hope enough people have actually read the full 46,000 plus words of your article to get to the end, because these are really good policy proposals. And, you know, let's you know, a bunch of them actually sound like what a Trump or someone like Trump would have actually tried to do if they were really trying to make America great again. You talk about restoring the U.S. manufacturing base, um, including right. you know, doing that partly through monetary and financial reform. Well, Trump claimed he wanted to do that, but he didn't get very far. Being friends with right. countries like Russia and China, Trump didn't get very far there either. He, on his watch, uh, Ukraine got armed with NATO weapons and trained by us, and he apparently or his administration launched biological war on China, which created the COVID pandemic. So that's not exactly being friends right. with Russia and China. Uh, you call for transitioning 80% of military spending to infrastructure, education, energy research. Trump raised military spending. You, you talk about trying to denuclearize and demilitarize the world. Uh, Trump didn't do anything remotely like that. Quite the opposite. You yeah. talk about comprehensive election reform. <laughs> well, Trump's version of election reform is just yowling because he lost. 
but he didn't have anything right. productive really to say about the fact that, yeah, we can't trust our elections. Let's come up with a way so we can. And let's fix the, the, the way that we vote people into office and, you know, fix some of the details. Um, and then you talk about ending the Fed and the CIA. Trump obviously didn't even try to do it. So, so basically all these things that Trump should have done and in some cases sort of made some, you know, some platitudes about, uh, that those are exactly the things that need to be done. On the other hand, it's hard to imagine anybody having the political capital to pursue more than a, a tiny fraction of this. But maybe if things get bad enough, it will become possible. Who knows? Well, Trump said he was going to drain the swamp, but he drowned in the swamp. Uh, the swamp just totally overwhelmed him. Are you there? Absolutely. Yeah, that's Sorry, well said. I I, I'm just I lost, sitting, here, I I sitting here in awe uh, at the genius of that sentence. <laughs> yeah, I thought I might have pushed a button here. <laughs> but yeah, uh, he drained, said he drained the swamp and he drowned in the swamp. He didn't have a clue as to what was going on around him or what was being done in his name. Uh, and so, you know, he kind of followed the same uh, uh all, all of the things that had been put into motion by Obama during his administration. And Obama, uh, and I say in there, he was a CIA asset. Uh, he was a complete fake. Uh, he got uh, the Nobel Peace Prize uh, uh, his second year in office. Maybe it was his first year. And, and then went out to engineer the Arab Spring and overthrow governments of seven nations. And that's what Trump inherited, and that's what they continue to do, uh, with Trump being given uh, almost no information about what was really going on and uh, just having to sit there and let the whole thing wash, you, you know, go by. Uh, yeah, he had some good instincts, even, even making a nice with North Korea and with Russia. Those were good instincts. But nevertheless, they got him to pull out of the agreement with Iran. He got him to move the American embassy to uh, Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, all of that stuff. So uh, Trump really didn't have a chance. So what will it take uh, to bring about real change? Well, you have to go after who's behind it and what's at the bottom of it. And that's big money, big finance, big banking, uh, big hedge funds. Uh, all of the uh, massive uh, superstructure of global finance that has been built up over the last half century. Uh, the repeal of Glass-Steagall under Bill Clinton was part of that. The destruction of the savings and loan industry and turning over mortgage lending to the banks was part of that. The authorization of leveraged buyouts was part of that. Uh, uh, these things just mounted and mounted and mounted until you have uh, uh, a, a liquidity uh, out there, a lot of it hidden away in offshore shelters in the hundreds of trillions of dollars. And that's really what's driven up inflation. So maybe we'll have hyperinflation that will crash the system. I don't know. But it's got to hit a wall at some point. It just cannot go on like this. And maybe when Russia and China and uh, the global south finally get together and create their own uh, reserve currency, create their own trading block, 
the growth of BRICS, the growth of the Shanghai uh, Cooperation Organization. Maybe that will create such a strong bulwark against this massive uh, of, uh, amount of Western fake money uh, that it will collapse. Uh, I don't know. Maybe that will be the way it has to go. Well, it sounds like you would say that Occupy Wall Street was barking up the right tree. And so absolutely. If we get, yeah. Maybe, maybe we need some uh, rebirth of that movement with more people from the, the Trump right involved in it in a context yeah. where where the other you know, the, the enemies of these international banksters, the Chinese, the Russians, the Iranians and so on, have conclusively sort of defeated this banker system abroad, which would lead to a crisis, economic political crisis here. And in those circumstances, right. maybe the authorities would join with the Occupy Wall Street people rather than crushing them. Yeah. They, yeah, they were absolutely uh, on the right track. I knew people who were doing that and uh, they were uh, squashed. Uh, they're still out there. There still is an Occupy movement that is, is mostly, uh, uh, you know, an, an, an intellectual thing now. It's not active, uh, activism in the streets. But, yeah, that was absolutely the right idea. Uh, you know who the main guy was who bailed out the banks in 2009? It was Obama. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, there's a record of Obama going to a meeting at the White House with George W. Bush uh, and uh, some of his campaign people during the campaign. And Obama said, yeah, uh, let me have it. And I will bail out your banks. I will do it. And they said, OK, you're the man. Yeah. It's a, so how, how did people go along with that? You know, in 2008, as that financial crisis unraveled, that was the year I was running for Congress. And Ron Kind, the incumbent Democratic congressman here, admitted that he got hundreds of calls about the proposed bailout and every single one of them was against it. And yet he went ahead and voted right. for it. Now, why do people keep electing guys like Ron Kind? Well, because of the power uh, behind it, uh, the whole deep state and Obama was a representative of the deep state. He was the front man for the deep state. Every string that could be pulled was pulled with the politicians. And, you know, every congressman has on their staff a CIA minder uh, to make sure that uh, they toe the line when. Uh, push comes to shove. No, no, Richard, how, how, number one, how do you know that? Number two, how does the congressperson, do, do they know who is the CIA minder on the staff? Or, you know, how, how does this work? Well, I saw it work in, I'm not going to name names, but uh, I was very close to a congressman uh, when I was uh, making the transition from working at Treasury to uh, working on my own. And I spent a good bit of time in uh, the office of a congressman talking about monetary issues and other. He was, a, you know, he's a liberal Democrat. And uh, there was this one guy that every time we would bring something up or talk about something, he would be the guy who would shoot it down. Uh, he would be the guy who would steer the conversation away from anything radical. And the congressman seemed to feel that, yeah, this was somebody I had better listen to. I'd also seen this when I was uh, working with uh, uh, Senator Hollings 
uh, after the Challenger disaster. Hollings was really on to the uh, likelihood that Reagan had forced Challenger to be launched to get up in time for his State of the Union speech. And Hollings wanted me to write an article for him about that uh, because he, he really understood that this was probably how it happened. Well, lo and behold, somebody came along on the staff and said, no, no, we can't do this. This is blah, blah, blah. And then one day I went in there and they said, no, sorry, Hollings has changed his mind. He, he can't do this. Uh, I published it under my own name. But uh, I've, I've seen in my contacts with Congress how this works. Uh, and these people are on the staff. They're not congressmen, but they watch and they influence and uh, they, they stop things if it goes too far. Interesting. This sort of reminds me of Jesse Ventura's story of how when he won as a third party candidate running for governor in Minnesota, the first thing that happened when he went to his office in the Capitol on the day he was sworn in was, I guess, maybe it was right after he was sworn in. He, They practically did to him, you know, what they did to Dick Cheney on 9-11, you know, lift him up and carry him down to the basement. And they sit him down in the basement. Right. And there's this room full of CIA agents who interrogate him to try to figure out how this independent candidate somehow won. Uh, and, and also, I suppose, to try to intimidate him. Well, I guess intimidating Jesse Ventura requires probably more than one room full of CIA agents could handle because he's told right. that story. Uh, but but yeah, that, it kind of suggests that the CIA, the, under law, they're, they're not allowed to do anything domestically. And it, it kind of looks like they might be violating that law every now and then. <laughs> every day. <laughs> every second. Every minute of every day. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's why they should be abolished. They're, they're a terrorist agency. They should be abolished. But you probably read in my paper that story about Clinton. Uh, when Clinton was governor, uh, he went to a meeting out at Mena Airport, Mena, Arkansas, where the drugs were flying uh, in and the guns were flying out uh, through that CIA operation there. And, and there was a meeting, and I read a first-person account of this. Uh, by a guy who appeared to me to be absolutely credible, uh, who was in that meeting. And he said, uh, in that meeting, there was a top CIA officer from Washington. And he was in there, and the meeting was with uh, uh, the people going in and out of the airport. And then Clinton pulls up in his limo and gets out of the car. And by the way, there's a strong aroma of marijuana coming from the car. Uh but uh, he goes in the meeting, and the CAA guy says, "You're going to be become one of you're going to become a president." And that was, you know, kind of the coronation. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and that's why I go into Clinton's background a good bit, because Clinton was groomed for that. But there was apparently an actual meeting and incident where they pronounced him uh, next in line. Yeah, I've heard similar stories about how the uh, was it the not the CFR but the Trilateral Commission uh, picked Jimmy Carter. They actually picked it was going to be either Carter or Reuben Askew, the Democratic governor of Florida. They wanted a Southern Democrat, and they they settled on Carter, so he was uh, selected rather than elected. And the same was yeah, probably true yeah. with Obama as well. There, there are rumors about Obama knowing he would one day be president. Uh, I think his wife Michelle actually said that, didn't she? I I don't know that, but he was CIA. From childhood. Yeah, and, and I, I'm pretty CIA. sure Michelle actually said that, that 
Obama knew he was going to be president something like at least like a decade or two in advance. Yeah. And at the time she yeah. thought he was, you know, just boasting or something. But no, he was he was he was made man. Yeah, that was the plan. I mean, how could a junior senator from Illinois in his first term become president of the United States? It's just ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. Well, the whole system is has gotten increasingly ridiculous, and your plan for reforming it strikes me as excellent. And you know, we don't have time tonight, unfortunately, to go over some of the other details of it. But people really should try to read your whole piece, which is the yeah. U.S. the Ukraine disaster in the future: the long view. And at the end of that article is the policy proposals, which are, I think, as good a bunch of proposals as you'll find from any USG analyst out there. <laughs> so thank you, Richard. I Great agree. <laughs> okay. I agree. If you do say so yourself. Okay. All right. Well, hey, thank you. Yeah, it's always okay. great talking with you. Really uh, appreciate that terrific article. I'm privileged to be able to publish stuff like this. So, hey, keep it up. Well, I really appreciate your support, Kevin. Really do. Okay. Thanks. Okay. Take care. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Bye-bye. See you. That's Richard Cook, former U.S. government analyst with NASA and the Treasury Department, Challenger disaster whistleblower, and uh, political analyst as well. Coming up in the next hour, we're going to have Peter Myers and Art Olivier talking about wild, crazy, esoteric, and ultra-controversial topics. That's Kevin Barrett, kevinbarrett.substack.com, and truthjihad.com. Listen to Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com.